0: Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for this book of Acts. Um, God, I pray that you would guide us and lead us as we walk through this. We understand that apart from you, um, God, it's just black words on white paper. And Lord, we need to, uh, we, we need to see you. And we pray, God, that you would use your spirit as we even study the spirit today to, uh, to help us, God, understand you, see you, know you, uh, God, so we can walk out of this place not filled With ourselves, Um, we got filled with you, and uh, and so God, more people can know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, in um in Tolkien J.R.R. Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, you may be familiar with this. uh, There is a um, there's a central figure that runs throughout the stories. uh, That's crucial to the theme. As we uh, read the books or watch the films, uh, we find that the central figure. Of the stories is not Gimli and his axe or Legolas and his arrows or Aragorn with his sword. Uh, it's not even Gollum. It's a very interesting character in that. It's not Gandalf, neither the white or the gray. Uh, it's not Samwise. It's not even Frodo, who we tend to love in the stories. The focus of the trilogy is not even a person, actually. It's spoil, spoil alert, in case you haven't seen it. The central figure is a ring. <laughs> it's in the title, so it kind of gives it away. It's a ring, right? The ring is absolutely essential to the whole storyline of the book and the movies. Without the ring, the mission of Frodo and his friends is pointless. Without the, the ring, the persistence of Gollum is in vain. Without the ring, the, the uh, resilience of Sauron is, is futile. The ring is everything. So it is for the Spirit of God in this book of Acts, okay? He is central. Uh, the, the protagonist, the hero, the central figure of the book of Acts It's not Peter, it's not Stephen, it's not even Paul, it is the Holy Spirit, okay, is the central figure. And the Holy Spirit's crucial. Without the Holy Spirit, the mission, discipleship, worship, growth would not be difficult, it'd be impossible. Uh, There is no life apart from the life-giving power of the Spirit. There is no understanding without the enlightening power of the Spirit. There's no community apart from the unifying power of the Holy Spirit, No one comes to Jesus apart from the drawing power of the Holy Spirit. No one gets on mission, sacrificially sacrificially serves apart from the motivating power of the Spirit. Okay, absolutely essential. The Spirit, the Bible teaches, convicts us, regenerates us, seals us, indwells us, equips us, imparts gifts to us, sanctifies us, makes us like Jesus, intercedes for us witnesses to us that we are children of God, produces fruit in us, moves us on mission, and will ultimately raise us and transform our bodies on a new earth to live with Jesus forever. Okay, so the Spirit of God is central. What we find in the book of Acts is the same Spirit of God that came upon Jesus after his baptism for mission and ministry, the same spirit that came upon the, the, the church in the book of Acts for mission and ministry is the same spirit that comes upon us today as a church for mission and ministry, okay? So we're going to study the, the spirit of God here in Acts chapter 2, and what we're going to find today, we're going to look at a couple of things. One the vessels of the spirit, who does, who does he use? Uh, the target of the Spirit, who's the Spirit after, and then the call of the Spirit at the end, okay? That's what we're looking at. Number one, vessels of the Spirit, okay? Look at verse, verse one in your Bible there. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. All right, so picking up from last week, 10 days have passed, and these 120 followers of Jesus, it's about 120 as we, we find out. A kind of ragtag group of uh, of men and women, uh, young and old, rich and poor, were all together huddled up in this this place in prayer. And they still don't know. Jesus told them that the Holy Spirit's going to come in power. They still don't know when that's going to happen. And the truth of the matter is, they really don't know what it even is going to mean or what it's going to look like in the situation. Um, but what they don't know. And what we already found out in the reading of the scripture this morning is that the Spirit's coming today, right? On the 10th day, the Spirit of God is going to come. Uh, and it's on the day called, called here called Pentecost. Okay, maybe a new word for you. Uh, Pentecost was, uh, happened 50 days after another celebration the Jews had, which was called Passover, which is significant as well. Pentecost, the word means 50th, 50th day after. Uh, Passover. It was a celebration, okay? It was a, a, a party of sorts, uh, lots of food, lots of singing, lots of dancing. You get the idea. It's one of the, the three great agricultural feasts um, of the Jews uh, they held annually to acknowledge God's goodness, um, uh, especially with uh, every person within 20-mile radius of Jerusalem were obligated to come to this, right? So it was a very big kind of party. Uh, it was also a holiday kind of for all people. We would maybe refer to it in modern day like a labor day of sorts. Everyone got off work for this. As a matter of fact, uh, even servants got the day off uh, and we're, we're, were there as well. And that explains the influx of all these people that are going to be here during this event we're about to look at. So you have the servants, you have the poor, you have foreigners even, all invited to come to this big block party uh, in Jerusalem. So they would kick it off, and here's how it would kind of work. They would kick off the festivities with two freshly baked loaves of bread. Right? They'd bring it in. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a symbol of the harvest. They were offering thanks to God for what he had given to them. Um, the harvest was complete, and now there were time to celebrate. So they come in with two big loaves of bread. It'd be like coming in with two big boxes of Heligoth's donuts, right? And everyone's like, yeah, this is exciting, right? This is fun. Jack's donuts, whichever one you want to do there. Paige's cupcakes or something like that, right? Just two boxes of really good stuff. They're, they're coming in. Everyone's like celebrating. They're all outside, outside on the streets. Um, they're, they're fired up. They're excited about the festivities, Meanwhile, inside this large house, kind of space, second floor, 120 people, you know, they're, they're, they're stuck inside. I imagine them like, like little, almost like sad puppies at the window, like going, I want some of the bread. <laughs> you know, they're like, I want a donut. Some of them are lifting the windows to kind of get the smell of the donuts in, you know, like the, the donut factory here in town. When that thing's churning, you know it because it smells good, right? And so these guys are all inside the house. There's a block party kind of going on outside. People from all over the place, as we will see later, from all over Uh, the the world, the then-known world, or there. Verse 2. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. So Luke says, Luke's our writer, by the way, and he says it happened, it was suddenly. Matter of fact, the same word he uses to describe this event is the same word we'll see later on in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. There's a story in there about a massive earthquake that shook and let prisoners free. And we'll, we'll study that later on. But understand it's the same word. Same word used to refer to an earthquake is the same word used to refer to here to a mighty rushing wind. Okay, Maybe you've, you may, not have never, may have never been in an earthquake. Um, I am from Los Angeles. Um, I've been in my fair share of, of earthquakes. Uh, matter of fact, uh, my first Earthquake experience was my first summer in L.A. It was back in 1998. And, uh, and we were there, and uh, I was out in Joshua Tree National uh, uh, Park there. I was camping. Yes, I was. I was camping. And uh, praise the Lord. Amen, hallelujah, right? Okay. Um, I was camping. And uh, I was there. It was a six-man tent, six of us in this thing. And you know, we were just kind of bouldering and climbing rocks and stuff like that during the day. And we were camping at about 2 a.m., 2 a.m., laying there, you know, in, in very uncomfortable ground. And um, I don't know why I do camping. But anyway, I'm, I was laying there, and uh, all of a sudden you hear what sounds like, a honestly, a train coming. Now, it's 2 a.m. I pop up out off, my, off the floor there, or the ground, and I kind of lift up and go. And, you're, you're, you know, you get woken up in the middle of the night, very bewildered. you do not quite sure what's going on. My first thought is going, why is a train running through the middle of Joshua Tree? Like, what is going on? all of a sudden, everybody else's head pops up, and we all look at each other. And it gets louder and louder and louder. And all of a sudden, the ground turns into the Pacific Ocean. Like, literally. It's like we're just sitting there going up and down and up. It was a very smooth earthquake. So these things go up and down, up and down. When it's all over, about a minute later, you're looking in the, in the, in the, um, out in the horizon. You can see what looks like fireworks because the transformers are blowing, you know, from surrounding cities. And uh, we, it's all over. We get out. The, uh, the Nokia 9000 wasn't working at the time for reception. Um, Maybe somebody remembers those. But it wasn't, uh, wasn't working, so we had to go out to the, to the truck, and they had to turn the radio on to see, hey, what, what? this obviously was an earthquake. Where was, the, where was that? We turned it on, it's like, 7.1 earthquake, epicenter, Joshua Tree. We're like, oh, we're, we're like right in the dead. It's my first summer in L.A., you know? Um, and so it, but that's kind of the way it was for these guys. That was the loud kind of sound, almost like this train coming for them, and they hear this uh, mighty sound coming. So it's a similar experience for this 120 uh, the sound started maybe as a whisper, turns into kind of like Niagara Falls, right? A deep, long, uh, hard sound. And it wasn't just sound that they heard. It was also wind, it says here, a very strong wind that no doubt, because many of them studied the Old Testament, they, they understood the, a lot of the imagery in the Old Testament, this idea of wind. It was used quite a lot. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you may remember some of these. Think about Exodus, right? The wind brought in the, the locusts. Uh, the wind was used to part, right, the Red Sea, and the wind was used to blow it back down upon the Egyptians, right? Uh, we find descriptions of God in the Old Testament as riding on the wind of judgment. Our sin is described as wind taking us away into judgment. So if you're catching on here, most of the time the word, when wind is used in the Old Testament, it was for judgment. I don't think these guys are really excited about what they're experiencing right now, okay? Um, their first response most likely was fear. Also remember that uh, when they were with Jesus, many of them, his entire ministry. They may, may remember that he, remember, calmed the storm, uh, the wind and the storm there. He had control over that. He taught them that the Spirit of God uh, comes like a wind when he was chatting with uh, Nicodemus there in John 3. Now, apparently this sound was so loud, though, okay, it was so loud inside this house that the crowds outside kind of put their donuts down. Okay, and put their cupcakes down, their loaves of bread, and they, they start coming towards the house. Like, what is going on in there? You know, they hear it. It's very loud, of whatever's happening. So they get close. Verse 3, it says, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Okay, Luke, again, our writer, gives us the, the best visual he can here. Okay, I, I, he, it seems like it's one of those you had to be there type of moments a lot of similes, a lot of metaphors, like it was kind of like tongues and it was similar to this. And it came, you know, he's trying to describe it to us the best he can. Basically, after the loud wind came, now, the, the, I'm just trying to imagine being these guys. The room, uh, the room is now filled with fire, okay? So if you thought judgment was coming with wind, fire definitely is something similar to judgment. So, so now they got fire, little flames to like stop and it breaks up and it hovers over each of their 120 heads, no, I don't. I don't think the people like um, I've seen like ancient artwork of this. Maybe you've seen pictures of this kind of idea. Someone painted this or draw this kind of image, and usually it's people standing there, like they're very devout in prayer, you know, and they're very calm. And I don't imagine that happening. I imagine because again, Jesus didn't describe like that this was going to happen. Just said the Spirit of God's coming in power. So I imagine them kind of like you know doing this number right. They're Someone running around, like trying to get the flame from chasing them. I mean, it's it's probably kind of a chaotic scene inside this place. I, for whatever reason, imagine Chris Farley and Tommy Boy running from imaginary bees. If you've ever seen that, that's what I imagine. Everyone kind of just going crazy inside the house. Now, if you were one of them, uh, you wouldn't know what to think. And again, it was nothing like this in the Old Testament. Nothing like this was described by Jesus as going to happen exactly. Uh, maybe the wind, but the fire was very new. Again, fire also connected with God's judgment. Uh, God is referred to as a consuming fire. The people trembled, remember, at Mount Sinai. They wouldn't even get close because of fire on top of the mountain and the, the wind. Uh, so they don't know uh, if this fire is going to consume them or what, right? They don't know what's going to happen with this. Maybe they have kind of that Isaiah in the temple type moment. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm done for. We're all going to die. So much for that power of the Spirit coming, right? This is a, it's all going to be over at this point. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, now, we get some technical stuff here, okay? Just put the academic hat on for a second. Stick with me for a moment. There are two things that occur here from the Spirit. First, it says they were baptized by the Spirit. Now, Jesus promised that back in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. You can see that up in verse 5. And then they were filled also with a special power from the Spirit for mission. I'm going to keep saying that because that's an important part of it. Filled with power from the Spirit for mission, as Jesus said in Acts 1.8. So both of these things, Jesus had said would happen. You Get baptized, you're going to be filled with power. So two distinct things. Baptism of the Spirit, understand this, is a one-time event at the moment of conversion, but the filling of the Spirit is something that comes and goes throughout your life in following Jesus, okay? Spirit baptism um, is that act of Jesus. You say, what is that? Is that something to do with water? Nothing to do with water at all, okay? Spirit baptism is the act of Jesus by which he places believers, those who are followers of Jesus, into his body. We become united with Jesus at conversion. We all become part of, it's called universal church. We all become part of that, the family of God, all right? This is, uh, you see some verses about this. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, in one spirit, we were all baptized, past tense, into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free. All are made to drink of one spirit. Uh, Paul would say in Galatians 3, 27, for as many as, if, as you were baptized, again, past tense, into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, all are one in Christ. Okay. New Testament, the New Testament being starting with Matthew all the way to the end of the book. That's the second half. Nowhere commands believers to seek the baptism of the Spirit, okay? You don't find that command anywhere. Uh, it is a sovereign, single, unrepeatable act on God's part, just like adoption would be, being brought into the family of God, just like justification would be, being declared righteous. It's not something that happens continually. It is a one-time event. There's no second baptism like as if there's a varsity Christianity and there's JV Christianity, right? If you really want to get varsity, you need to get baptized. Like that, that, that's not how it works. Your happens immediately upon conversion. Now, I said this last week. We'll keep bringing this up. Um, this is going to happen throughout Acts. You need to remember that things that occur in Acts are unique and they are time specific to the people in Acts. Acts is a descriptive kind of book. I mean, it tells us about events that occurred. It's not necessarily giving us uh, commands of what to do. It's, telling, it's just describing, Luke is describing events as they occurred. He's not telling us what is necessarily normative. He's not even giving us necessary theological lessons, like Paul would say in the book of Romans. Uh, so in your study, for example, on Sunday nights, if you guys are in the Second Samuel study, you understand this. Um, just because it happens, <laughs> this is definitely true in 2 Samuel, right? Just because it happens in 2 Samuel, doesn't mean you should go out and do it, right? It's not not there. It's not a prescriptive. It's not saying, here, go do this. It's just descriptive. It's just describing the events that occurred, okay? That's what's happening in Acts. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not telling us, go do this, or this is what is normative necessarily, okay? Um, Just because, again, it happened doesn't mean it's to be repeated, followed, or practiced by believers today or how things normally occur. So the baptism of the Spirit is unique for their time period here in Acts as they were already followers of Jesus, okay? They were already that. They they didn't become ones at this point. They already were. And Luke is showing us how things are transitioning now between Old Old Testament or Old Covenant and New Covenant, right? Things are transitioning. Things are changing here uh, in this way. And Luke is showing us how things are, again, that transition is taking place, how the church is getting started, how the mission is beginning, now, that's baptism. Second thing that happens here, though, is a filling of the Spirit, which is very different. While the Spirit did come, come upon them here, we find, and, and would stay with them forever, being baptized with them, he also came upon them with power, as Jesus promised back in 1.8, to fulfill the mission that he has for them. Okay? This filling or this empowerment of the Spirit would come and go on different people, did not stay necessarily on one person in this way, it was always to empower people for the mission laid out in front of them. So the Spirit of God would always with them, but would come upon them in power and gift them or equip them or use them in a very specific situation for the sake of the mission. That's the, the filling of the Spirit, okay? Okay. Um, Okay, if you've read the Old Testament, you maybe have seen this before, okay? In the Old Testament, we see sometimes the Spirit of God will come upon a person. You'd be like, oh, you just described it, and all of a sudden, something happens, right? It was always for a mission that God had for them. Uh, We find the Holy Spirit come upon Samson, for example, for a battle situation, or Gideon for a judging situation, or David for ruling situations, or Moses for leading situations, or Isaiah and Ezekiel for speaking situations. Right, The Spirit of God would come upon them for a specific task, a specific mission that God had for them. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, early on in the Gospel accounts, we find this kind of description. Listen, Luke chapter 1 Verse 41 says, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, okay, Elizabeth will be the mother of John the Baptist, Mary, mother of Jesus, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was, here it is, filled with the Holy Spirit, and what happened? She exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb, right? So the Spirit of God came upon them for speaking here in a very specific way. Later, in the same chapter, uh, Luke, our same writer here, chapter 1 of Luke, verse 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and what did he do? He Prophesied, saying, Blessed Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people. Later on, Luke chapter three, verse twenty-two, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus here in bodily form, like a dove. A voice came from heaven, You're my beloved son, who am well pleased. And what happened? Jesus began his ministry. Okay, so see the Holy Spirit of God came upon him power for the sake of what's in front of them. Later on in Acts we're gonna see this. Acts four, thirty-one. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Filling of the Spirit came, speaking boldness as a result. Acts 7, 55, we got Stephen here. He was full of the Holy Spirit, Gaze into heaven. He's about to be stoned, he's about to die. He saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Right? So he's able to speak. Um, God's word in the midst of a situation where he's about to die, he even offers forgiveness to them, right? All of that was a product of the Spirit of God coming upon them in power, okay? So baptism and then empowerment or filling is another statement, okay? You say, now, how so, Chris, okay, that's great, but how do I know if I am spirit-filled, okay? I get the whole baptism thing, but how how do I know? A spirit-filled person, very simply, is someone who talks about Jesus and serves people like Jesus, it's not about one who necessarily does miracles. A lot of times you think of filling of the Spirit as like some kind of crazy, miraculous thing, and it's not necessarily the case. Or someone who speaks in unintelligible kind of words. The Spirit fills you to go on mission to speak of Jesus and serve like Jesus. That's what, these are, that's what it's for. Just like the Spirit came upon Jesus for mission, so he comes upon us for mission. Paul, later on in a book called Ephesians, would write a little bit more about this and would describe it this way. Ephesians 5 Verse 18, he gives us some traits of a spirit-filled person. He says, be filled. There's a command. So obviously this is something that happens and not happens. Be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing making melody to to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul here instructs the Christians, to be continually filled with the Spirit. And the result would be they'll be singing, they'll be thinking, and they'll be submitting to one another and serving one another in this way. You say, well, but how do I become Spirit-filled, right? What's the secret? What's the formula in that sense? And in some ways, you can't necessarily do anything to, to make it happen, okay? You can't make God do things based on your efforts or, or, or whatever. Uh, John 3, Jesus would describe the Spirit coming and going kind of like wind, um, and yet we learn here in the book of Acts in chapter 1, as well as Colossians 3, which is very much parallel to Ephesians passage, that we can always be ready by praying, by waiting on the Lord, by studying the scriptures, right? Listen to Colossians three sixteen. Very similar. Be filled with the Spirit is substituted with, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Look what happens. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, thanksgiving your heart to the Lord. See the parallels? So there's a sense of what it means to be filled with the Spirit is also, you want to be filled with the Spirit? Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, right? So it's not sitting around, being lazy, waiting for the Spirit of God to zap you, right? To move out on mission and to serve people. It's not what's happening. The followers of Jesus received power from the Spirit as they prayed, as they waited on the Lord, as they studied, as we saw earlier in chapter one, but also as they moved out on mission, the Spirit of God, as it were, likes to hit a moving target, okay? <laughs> you got to be moving. Um, I've had the, uh, you experienced that, right? Um, lots of different things begin to happen. I've had multiple opportunities. I've, I've, I've experienced that, right? The Word, uh, the Spirit of God is, will come upon you for times of speaking to someone. God will bring thoughts to your mind, bring words to your mind, bring scriptures to your mind. Some of you have never read in a long time, and all of a sudden they come to your mind to be able to speak, even things of not to say, right? God, God will kind of zip your lips there and be like, okay, that wasn't the right word to say there. God kind of took over my mouth a little bit there. I was glad I didn't say that, right? You experience that kind of spirit of God moving and working as you're on mission. So there's no formula to follow. There's no buttons to push um, to make the spirit of God do these things. But I can tell you, if you're filled with the word, if you're seeking to do God's will, if you're in prayer and you're on mission, the spirit of God will work in ways you can't imagine. Right, But you can't just sit there. You've got to move. That's what happens in the book of Acts. They're always moving. It's a very uh, action-oriented book. Now, let me pause, pause for a moment and deal with something else. Okay, Back to the academic hat for a second. It says here they spoke in other tongues that Luke mentions here. And notice, notice as we'll see later on, as we heard read earlier, that the, the, it's actually languages that they're speaking. The text will make clear. It wasn't, just, it wasn't gibberish. It was a work of the Spirit of God for Mission. Matter of fact, the Greek word for tongues is actually just the word for languages, and most of the time it's a reference to literal languages of human beings, which might help you. Even putting that word in there, sometimes you read tongues and it gets kind of really confused. Just put in languages, okay? Um, one, de- one way you could, could define this is a, a supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit, whereby a believer speaks forth in a language they have never learned, in which they do not understand. Okay, that's what they're they're doing. Out of the references to speaking in tongues later in Acts, and also references in 1 Corinthians as we've studied already, uh, Justin preached on that this past year, uh, this is the only passage that actually gives us a description of actually what it means or what it looks like. Okay, all the rest of them just say spoken tongues. You're like, I don't know what that means. So it seems more reasonable when you're studying your Bible to interpret the, the unexplained in light of the more explained passages. These guys are not speaking in other languages because it was cool. They're not speaking in other languages because it made them feel better about themselves. It was for the mission of getting the gospel out for people to understand and know Jesus. That was the point. You got more questions on that, I refer you to Justin Cook. <laughs> he, he's the authority on that one. Just, just tell him I said that. Uh, he did preach a couple, you know, a couple sermons on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, so you can, uh, you can talk to him about that. All right, let's move to number two. The target of the Spirit, okay? Who's, who's the target? Who's the Spirit of God that's going to come upon a believer, fill them for who? Who, who's, who are they after? And as I've said, the reason the Spirit of God comes upon in power is for mission. The reason the Spirit of God works on you as a follower of Jesus, the reason he causes you to bear fruit, the reason he illumines your eyes to see and understand the Scriptures is for the sake of the mission. Okay, don't, don't miss that. I said this last week, but I just need to repeat it again. The, the mission is the point even of your own personal sanctification. It's another word you may not be familiar with, being made like Jesus, okay? God works on you to make you like Jesus. The point of that is so that you're like Jesus. <laughs> so you, you look like Jesus, you act like Jesus, you, you speak like Jesus. That's the whole point. If there was no mission, okay, if there was no mission for this, if Jesus left no mission at all, there was nobody to reach, then there wouldn't be no coming of the Holy Spirit in power. matter of fact, Jesus would have just took them with him when he ascended, right? He left them for the sake uh, of the mission and sanctifies them, makes them like Jesus for the mission. So the Spirit is working on us individually, corporately, so that we can be better, more effective missionaries and servants. So the target, the Spirit is doing that for, he's working on us, right? Getting all the rough edges off, right? Using, uh, using the Spirit of God is doing that for the sake of the lost, suffering, hurting people around us. That's the target. So look at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So now we start to see, remember back in chapter 1, Jesus said the Spirit of God's going to come upon you in power. They waited 10 days. I remember we talked about it before. They were like, I would have been asking, like, why are we waiting so long? Like, what's the, what's the big deal with the wait? It was for this day. Very specific. At this very moment in time, People from all over the world were in Jerusalem packing the streets. Literally people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's a reference we'll find later on in the book of Revelation. So look at verse 6. At the sound, the multitude came together. They are bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now we know that there are at least, at bare minimum, 3,000 people here. Because right, we know later on in the story, we find that 3,000 people decided to follow Jesus. Okay? So there's at least that many, probably way, way more than that. And so what we have is the 120 followers of Jesus finally kind of calming down from the dancing flames okay, on their heads, filled with the Spirit, moving out of their house now onto the street where this big festivities are taking place. And the mission begins. And the crowd, it says here, they're amazed. And they're excited. And they're a little confused as well. You can see the kind of bewildered looks on their face, the, maybe the slight hum of whispers spreading through the crowd as more and more onlookers begin to gather. You know, when something's happening and you see crowds gather and more people gather, like, hey, what are you looking at, right? So more and more people are getting closer and closer see what the fuss is about. As they got closer, they're hearing, okay, what at first from a distance may sound just like gibberish, as they get closer, they start hearing their own languages, um, they start picking up individual languages, their own languages, in the midst of the noise, right? And it, it's kind of hard for us to kind of grasp that idea, um, but I kind of wanted to do a little experiment here for a second. We'll see if this works out or not, okay? But if it doesn't, then, hey, it was worth a try. So on the screen it's John 3.16, okay? Familiar for many people, all right? I'll be honest. I told you before, I had no idea what John 3.16 meant. I used to see it at baseball games when i watch them. a guy behind a home plate holding up a sign, John 3.16, and I always wondered, like, why isn't John sitting in row three, you know, row three, seat 16? Why well, well, doesn't John call him at 3.16? Like, I had no idea what John 3.16 meant. I do now, which is good, right? I should know that. I do. All right. So John 3.16 is, for God so loved the world, gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, have everlasting life. Okay. So so that's the verse. Now, imagine in this situation, now I've asked a couple of you, many of you, if you have the opportunity to speak in a different language to actually do that. So actually, if, you, if you're one of those folks, could you stand, with, stand for a moment? I oh, know it's okay. We're gonna isolate you, and you're gonna be like, oh, this is kind of nerve-wracking. It's okay if you have notes or a card. Yes, we're doing sign language too, absolutely. And we got, we got this. All right, so I want you to hear, so on the count of three, all right, you ready? On a count of three, I want you to say John three sixteen. Let's do it two times in a row, in your language. Ready? One, two, three, go. See, you got that? It kind of works. You got that. But you kind of hear all that, and you're like, well, what's going on? You kind of turn around, you pick up a little bit of language here. You guys can have a seat. Thank you very much. The uh, Thank you. <laughs> but you kind of start picking up the different languages. You start hearing them. Oh, yeah, sorry. You got to do this number. Silent clapping. Silent clapping. Um, move over. Um, if you got in late, you have no idea what that means. Um, should be here on time. I'm no, just kidding. Uh, so, but you... <laughs> Um, But you hear all these different languages, you kind of start, you pick up this one, you hear that one. That's what they were experiencing. Imagine like a whole crowd. It's 120 people speaking possibly 120 different languages all at the same time. Okay, that's what was happening. Now you understand why the crowds were like coming over going like, what in the world is going on? And not just that. Because maybe they thought when they pick their head up and kind of look and they, they look over the crowd and they get closer and they see there's 120 people, maybe they thought they were going to see like philosophers, you know, and uh, people of really importance. Instead, as we've looked at already, they saw the 120 people who were followers of Jesus who were not very important, okay? Um, that's who they saw. I mean, it would have been very, very interesting to see that, Right? Um, I mean, this multilingual presentation of the gospel was super important for us to understand because it says something to us about the gospel and about the mission. Remember, the disciples could have very easily spoken maybe Arabic or maybe Greek uh, as most of the people, even though they spoke another language because of what was called the Pax Romana, right, the kind of dominance of Rome and all, the, you know, all roads lead to Rome, all those areas that uh, we'll look at here in a second on the map. Rome had kind of spread out, and because of Greek language being spread with it, most people kind of spoke that in order to do business, right, kind of thing. So so they would have understood that. And so the, the, the 120 could have spoken with that, but Jesus didn't have them do that, They had them speak in their own languages. What does that mean? To speak in one language would have made Christianity in some ways territorial or maybe tribal in some ways. Like you've got to convert to this group, and you've got to speak this language in order to understand this shows the gospel is for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, right? This is what God is saying right here at the very beginning of Acts. This means the gospel transcends all racial, national, or linguistic barriers. It's actually interesting enough, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's a story called the, the Tower of Babel, where the languages were confused. And in many ways, this is like a reversal of that curse, right? Um, there in, the, in Genesis 11 people united to make a name for themselves build as it were like a, 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 a staircase to heaven as it were to, and it only led to disunity, it led to confusion, it led to brokenness in Acts 2 the people unite to call the name of the Lord together in all these different languages and it brings about salvation redemption right? It was pretty crazy. It's like a reversal of that. Genesis 11, human languages were confused. Nations were scattered. Acts 2, the language barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered in Christ, prefiguring the day where every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, right? People from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be in eternity. Look at verse 7. They were amazed, right? Yeah, I'd be amazed if I was sitting there watching 120 people that from what appears to be understood they were Galileans, most of them, which in that, in that culture was kind of pejorative for like the st- sticks in some ways. Like, oh, yeah, those people, you know, they, they, don't, they shouldn't know any languages. Like, why did they know my language? So they're amazed by this. They're like, wow, these people know my language. And they're astonished, saying, are not all these people speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native tongue?" So they're, they're shocked. They're not hearing an occasional word accidentally thrown in in the stream of lexical gibberish here. Uh, they heard the gospel in its entirety in surround sound, as it were. And what's even more amazing, again, as they looked up, supposing to see these philosophers, they saw Galileans, ordinary people. Uh, and so we find that, they, uh, that this, is, this is who they were. And then verse 9, you look down, your Bible gives all the description of where they were from. And you'll see a map here on the screen that the, the list moves from east to west covering most of what Rome um, had kind of dominated or was over the then-known world, okay? It covers portions of Africa, portions of Europe, and Asia. So you see this is kind of this is what's happening. Notice that, that what they're speaking about, too, in the passage. They're not speaking about their own mighty works. They're speaking about the mighty works of God. They're speaking about the work of Jesus Christ, the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And people from all over the world are there to hear this. Look out at your Bible, verse 12. They were amazed, perplexed, right? Start to ask questions. Some saying, what does this mean? Others, verse 13, are mocking. said they're filled with new wine. So same as today, isn't it? Same as today. Some people respond with questions. I don't, I don't quite understand. Like, what, what does this mean? Some respond with amazement. Some want to know more about it. Some are, are afraid, as Luke uses the same word here to describe uh, what happened to Herod in Luke 9 when he thought John the Baptist had come back to life, he sees Jesus, he's like, oh no, what's happening? John the Baptist has come back from the dead to haunt me kind of thing. He's confused, he doesn't understand, same word used here. Um, others respond, we find, with mockery, derision, who are really really the most afraid in this, in this sense. And they say basically, these guys, well, what are they doing? They, they, this doesn't make any sense. Okay, they must be drunk out of their minds. That's, their, that's their, the only thing they can reach for. Um, But all of these folks, even the mockers, are people the Spirit of God is targeting even today through our lives, right? So who is the Spirit of God filling you to target, right? Who who has he got in your life to speak to in that way? Lastly, number three, the call of the Spirit. The goal, ultimate end of the work of the Spirit is to exalt Jesus Christ. So look at verse 14. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So the crowd, for the most part, is kind of on the edge of their seat. They want to know what's going on. And so the Spirit of God prompts Peter, of all people, okay, to to stand up and speak. This was definitely a work of the Spirit of God because the last time we saw Peter speaking, okay, was in, in public Last time we saw him, he was denying Jesus publicly, right? That was the last time he was publicly speaking to a group of of foreigners or those outside the circle of disciples. And notice that Peter's not alone, though. Do you see that? It says Peter stood with the 11 other disciples stood with him, right? Uh, Even with the Spirit of God filling a person, there's still that need to be surrounded by fellow godly people to support you and encourage you on mission. This is because, as we'll see in Acts, the mission was never meant to be done alone, It was meant to be done as a church. That's why God established churches. Okay. That's why he established a body of believers to use together. Um, Look at verse 15. So Peter says, his first statement, these these men are not drunk, as you suppose. Since it's only about the third hour of the day. I think this is funny. He starts off with a little bit of humor. Basically, what he says, he says, tells them, he tells them, you know, guys, you need to check your watches, check your eye watches here. Um, It's 9 a.m. All right, it's 9 a.m. Not even the most aggressive of drinkers is slammed by 9 a.m., right? Um, you're, you're probably like, well, you don't know my neighbor, but you understand the story, okay? You understand what we're getting at. Peter's like, guys, it's, it's 9 a.m., this can't be a logical explanation of what you're experiencing here. So, verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. You say, who's Joel? I mean, Noah, Joel, but like, who's Joel? Joel's an Old Testament prophet, one's be- Old Testament before Matthew, okay? First half of the book, he's a prophet. Now, why in the world is Peter, out of all the people he's decided to quote, why is he quoting from Joel? Well, no doubt, because when we talked about the post-resurrection Bible studies that Jesus did with them, teaching them from all the prophets about himself, that no doubt Jesus taught about Joel, and Peter remembers this, and so he's going to speak. But, but why Joel, of all the books? Joel was written, okay, on the occasion of a disaster that was happening in Israel. Uh, there had been a locust invasion And uh, the plague had destroyed about every green thing in the land. You may think that's not a huge deal. But if you're in a a rural agricultural economy, that was devastating, right? It destroyed everything that they had. I mean, it's like all their money got ate up, right? That was their money, their crops. And so it was serious. It was life and death for most people. And Joel, the book, instead of saying, you know what, don't worry about it, guys. Things are going to get better. Actually, Joel, (laughs) as he writes, if you've read Joel before, basically says, oh, no, they're going to get worse. And so, so why is Peter quoting this section of Joel? Well, first of all, it is that sense of to strike fear in the hearts of the hearers by telling them that the day of the Lord's judgment is near. This is a sign that judgment is closer. Obviously, it's closer than it was the day before, right? It's, it's closer. It's coming. This is the Spirit of God coming. But he also quotes to give hope. Look at verse 17. It says, I'll pour my spirit on all flesh, sons, daughters, shall prophesy. young men, old men, male servants, female servants, right? So Peter quotes them. It says the Spirit of God has come not just for Jewish men, which may have been a thought at this moment, right? It was a very um, male-oriented culture, right, especially for the Jewish culture there. And so what Peter's quoting from is telling them that, hey, this isn't for just the men here, or the Jewish men. God has opened the gates for all to enter in, uh, all the nations, despite gender, age, or class. And then Peter quotes the, the next half to explain what's going to happen in the future. So he explains what's happening now, and then he explains what's going to happen in the future here for those who refuse to respond to the message of the gospel. Verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above. He talks about blood and fire and smoke and darkness and all this stuff. The great and magnificent day, he says, the, Lord, the day of the Lord comes. But notice, out of all of that, though, he offers hope. Did you notice the very end of this, verse 21? It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Joel's basically, the book is saying, hey, it's bad now, can I tell you something? It's gonna get worse in the future if you don't respond to God. But there's hope if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. And notice again, it's not the rich or the poor who call. It's not male or female who call. It's not young or old who call. It's everyone who calls. But how do they escape the wrath that's coming, right, that Joel speaks about? The day of the Lord coming, the day of wrath. Would God just... And maybe you think this sometimes, would God just kind of sweep sin under the cosmic rug of the universe? Be like, okay, let's just uh, act like that didn't happen. Can God do that? No, God can't. Because one of the things we sung earlier was about God's holiness and God's righteousness. God's too righteous to sweep under the rug. And let's be honest, no one wants a God that just turns a blind eye to sin and injustice and pain and suffering, right? No one wants someone to just be like, ah, it's no big deal. No, God takes it seriously. He takes sin seriously, and so how, how would the Lord save them then? What, what, what will stop the wrath from being poured out on humanity, out on sin, out on us? And listen to the last, to the last verse of, of Joel. It's not quoted here, but let me just give you the very last verse of Joel. Joel 3, 21. I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted. You say, what's acquitted? Forgiven. That sweep under the rug is not gonna be swept. It's gonna be forgiven, but how, how would that happen? See, God who is righteous would be able to save you, love you, rescue you because he himself, and this is a story of the gospel, a story of the Bible, would come down. And I've seen this a lot, but he would live a life you could not live to perfection. Die a death, you should have died to save you. God couldn't ignore sin. That would make him unrighteous, right? Instead, Jesus would take on the wrath of God that was coming and shelter you from it as a result. He would take it on himself. A few months ago, I told you this story. It's just always, this image is always very helpful for me to understand Jesus taking on the wrath of God for us. It was a story, National Geographic, uh, in, the, in the, how about a forest fire that went through uh, Yellowstone National Park. Afterwards, some rangers uh, were scurrying about uh, you know, the park, checking on things after the fire, and they found a, a bird of which nothing was left uh, but a carbonized, kind of petrified shell covered in ashes, kind of huddled up against the base of a tree. One of the rangers, it says in the story, knocked the, took a stick and knocked the, the carcass of the bird over, and all of a sudden, three little tiny chicks came running out from underneath the carcass of the bird. During the fire, the mother had apparently seen the fire coming, realized there was no escape, and she instead sacrificed herself for her own brood. Right, She leaned up against a tree, put them underneath her, and she took the brunt of the wrath of the fire against her so that they could be saved. Right? That's what Joel is talking about. That's what the gospel is talking about. God will acquit us. will take on the wrath of God because he himself took it on. He himself absorbed it. He, he faced the wrath of God for us. For you who are followers of Jesus, can you, can you look down? And we're going to look at this next week. But look down at verse 41 and notice what happens after all this. 3,000 people come to know Jesus, right? Saved from the coming wrath of God. They respond. How? by using, using a simple, no-name people by opening their mouths to tell the mighty works of God on their behalf. Can you imagine being them for a moment? This 120 people, we've looked at before, okay? Um, just said, uh, no doubt they were terrified when the wind and fire came. They were symbols of judgment, uh, that they, all, they knew all too well about those symbols, but they also knew themselves pretty well. Um, matter of fact, the last time that this group of people opened their mouths, it didn't go very well. Think about Peter. He had used his tongue to rebuke Jesus and deny him. James and John, we find the Gospels are using their tongues for for spilling to arrogance and racism and wanting to kill all the Samaritans. Jude and James, Jesus' own half-brothers, used their tongue to deny Jesus and not not trust him. Nicodemus had used his tongue for gloating and self-righteousness. Thomas used his for doubting. Zacchaeus used his for lying and deceit. As a matter of fact, all of them shut their mouths when the one time they should have opened them, Right When Jesus was at his greatest hour of need, they all just shut their mouths. No one spoke up for him. No one stood up for him in that sense. How could, of all all people, how could these people have their tongues used of Jesus to speak truth and hope to people? And the answer was, again, they had been forgiven. They had found shelter under the wings of Jesus. And the grace they had received moved, moved them to speak despite how they may have been silent before. See, the Holy Spirit, through the gospel, gives you not only the power to speak, guys, it gives you the desire to speak. It makes you want to speak. <laughs> you experience the grace of God in your life on how you have not spoken before or how you've spoken badly before, right? God uses your mouth to speak of Jesus, and that, that's motivating, that's empowering for us. So in light of grace, open your mouth to speak of grace. As we go to communion we're gonna remember the opportunity to, to actually repent of possibly using our silence instead of using our words. And to ask God to, to help us, to give us opportunities to speak when we've been, maybe we've been silent before. There's bread and there's cups there. If you're new with us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to do this. We're gonna have some quiet time. As I said last week, some of you are overly aggressive. Relax, okay? Maybe just leave it in the pew for a minute, okay? Don't grab it and rip it open so fast. Take a moment to reflect However, God may have spoke to you through this passage to reflect on where you are with Jesus, some things maybe you need to repent of, some things you need to pray for, maybe opportunities for God to give you in front of you. Right As you're ready, there's bread and there's juice. We take those in remembrance of him, body, Jesus has broken for us, his blood poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never experienced being saved from the wrath of God, you don't understand what that means, this is not for you. We would love to answer your questions. We'd love to talk with you. Afterwards, let me pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word here and the story in Acts. It's exciting, these stories, um, uh, the things that were happening. I'd love to have been there that day just to watch and see. I'd love even more to have participated in, in this. And yet, God, as we think about it, we have the opportunity to participate today. It's the same spirit that we read about in these stories, it's the same spirit that's working today. We are just like that group of 120. And God, I pray that you would use us as you use them. God, help us to turn from our selfishness, um, from our fear in ways that we don't speak of you, we don't talk about you. Um, Pray, God, that you would move and help us understand the grace that we've received in Christ so that, God, we could turn around and speak of you more. Give us opportunities, open up doors, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.